Uh, The scripture reading that we've chosen this evening is taken from Acts 16. We'll be reading from verses 25 through 34. If you're using the Pew Bible this evening, you find that on page 1275. After we read from the Word of God itself, we'll also read a reference from the Heidelberg Catechism, which we believe is a faithful summary of the Word of God. This evening, we come to Lord's Day 23 in the Forms and Prayers book. You find this on page 224. Uh, So first of all, we read from the inspired Word of God itself this evening from Acts 16, verses 25 through 34. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke of the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and rejoicing, and rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Uh, thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to Lord's Day 23, which has three questions. The first one, question 59, asks, But how does it help you now that you believe all this? And the answer, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. Question 60, ask, how are you righteous before God? And the answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of mine, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Question 61 then asks, why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? And the answer, not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in our hymn from Selection 460, we sang in the fourth stanza, Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails save that which is of Thee. 
My intention this evening, with the Lord's help, is to speak plainly of that truth. There is one only righteousness by which you and I can be in a right relationship with God. And it is, as the reformer Martin Luther called it, an alien righteousness. A righteousness outside of ourselves. A righteousness that has been obtained by someone else. A righteousness that is freely credited or imputed to anyone and to everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification by faith alone has been referred to as one of the great pillars of the Christian faith. And indeed it is. Uh, one of the hinges upon which the door of salvation uh, swings. But there's always, it seems, this perpetual danger of having the beauty, the glory, the wonder of justification by faith alone eclipsed by some type of moralism, some type of legalism, some type of secret attitude may be hidden deep in the recesses of our mind and of our heart that says, yes, but I think I have to do something as well in order to be right with God. But that's simply not the case. If we think that we have to add anything to the work of Christ then we take something away from the beauty of what he has accomplished in his work. Over the past weeks, we've had the opportunity once again to make our way through the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of the content of the Christian faith as that is summarized in the Apostles' Creed, especially focusing upon the person of Jesus Christ and his work of humiliation and his work of exaltation. But now the Catechism comes and it says, what benefit is this to you? So you have faith. So you have the Christian faith. So you believe with the heart and you confess with the mouth that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who in the fullness of time was incarnate, who suffered, who died, who descended into hell, who was buried uh, but who rose again, who ascended into heaven, who now sits at the right hand of the Father, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. So what? What does it benefit you? And the answer of the comforted Christian is this. I am right with God. We want to look at these topics underneath this theme, redemption through righteousness in Christ. I'm noticing, first of all, the idea of righteousness, and then secondly, the basis of for righteousness, and then thirdly, the reception of righteousness. So redemption through the righteousness of Christ, the idea, the basis, and the reception of righteousness. So first of all, we use this word and we talk about this concept of, of righteousness, but what exactly is righteousness? Well, two things we want to say tonight is that this whole idea or this truth or this reality of righteousness 
are only understood in relationship to God's being and in relationship to God's law. You see, one of the common problems within our society and a church that is impacted by our society is that many begin their conversation about righteousness at a merely human level, at a level of society. And then it's evaluated from what I believe righteousness to be, what, what I myself believe is right. But that's not the way to begin. The way to begin in our understanding of the idea or the truth or the reality of righteousness is to first of all recognize that the most important perspective is me before God. How can I be right before God? How can I be right and just in the presence of God, in the sight of God, in the evaluation of God? And so our catechism it summarizes biblical teaching so thoroughly that it forces us to ask this question, so to speak, quorum Deo, in the presence of God. It lifts us up, you might say, to a higher plane of reality. Okay, so it certainly speaks of your human interpersonal relationships, but how are you right with God? And the answer, of course, uh, then confronts us with the importance of the being of God. And against all of the foolishness uh, of our culture and the pretended multitudes of gods, uh, we, of course, know from Scripture that there is one only God. And this God is the sovereign God. And this God is the sovereign judge of heaven and of earth with a perfect righteousness that includes uh, what theologians call his, his rectora righteousness, which is the fact that he, because he is God, has the, the right or the authority to judge and to evaluate individuals standing before him. And certainly we acknowledge the proper existence of earthly courts, but earthly courts uh, are really but a drop in the bucket in relationship to the heavenly court of God himself. God is the ruler of men. And so when you ask yourself, what is righteousness? You must then turn to God and say, God is righteousness. And God's will is righteousness, and God's will is an expression of his holiness. And His holiness especially is revealed in His law. Now, I know these concepts are, are not popular concepts in our day. To speak of one only God and then to go on to speak of a just God and a holy God and then to go even further and speak about a God who expresses His holiness through the law. These are not popular topics for conversation, but they are biblical realities. So if you ask yourself, what is righteousness? You must first begin with God and His essential being as the one only holy God who is the judge of the entire human race, and then you must go to his law because there is the expression of what is righteous. But then the conscience begins to speak if the conscience is properly tuned. And so God says in his law, righteousness is that you shall have no other gods before me. You want to know what is right? To have no other gods before me. But our conscience accuses us and says, ah, but you love many, many, many other things. 
and you desire many, many, many other things. And you live at times for many, many, many other things. And you can pick the commandments at somewhat of an arbitrary nature. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But if our conscience is properly tuned again by biblical truth, how many times don't we take the name of our Lord flippantly upon our lips? How many times don't we speak lightly about the profound doctrines of our God? These are just two commandments, and again, I confess they're taken at somewhat of an arbitrary nature, but our conscience accuses us. Our conscience says, you do not have a perfect righteousness. And when the Spirit then blesses the Word, we then come uh, with a similar question as the jailer here, what must I do to be saved? And then another voice is heard, the verdict of our Lord. The verdict of our Lord says that the Christian is righteous. Now, now here's the dilemma. My, my conscience says I have sinned against all the commandments of God, and I have never kept a single one of them perfectly. But in the testimony of the Word of the Lord to all of those who believe is you will be saved. How? How is that possible? Well, that brings us into the consideration of our second point, the basis for righteousness. And the basis is the work of Christ and the gift of God. But before we get into the work of Christ, I want to preface it by saying the basis for our acceptance before God is not found in any way within ourselves. There is a perpetual danger. And that's why you'll hear me speak of it from time to time. The perpetual danger of some type of moralism. Just give me a list of do's and don'ts. And I'll do my best to follow the do's and don'ts. And if I earnestly attempt to follow that list of do's and don'ts, then my conscience will have peace with God. That's, in essence, moralism. And what moralism loves to do is work and work and work. But what moralism fails to do is to give peace. Uh, there's also a certain strain of moralism that we're going to call conservatism. We're not referring here to a political conservatism or a financial, but rather a theological conservatism. That if only we don't become like them, then we're right with God. It's moralism packaged in a certain traditionalism. That we think we're right with God because we haven't adopted this or we haven't done that. Or we don't believe those things. These are the subtle ways in which works righteousness begins to creep back in to our heart. And when it does, 
It needs to be confronted with the reality that the basis of our righteousness is completely, entirely found in another. In Christ and in Christ alone. I would encourage all of us to exercise our memories with scriptural passages, especially young people and children. Uh, your, your minds are so much quicker when you're young. You're able to memorize things so much easier. Memorize Scripture. And one of the passages that I would encourage you to memorize is Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the clearest summary, the most concise summary of the basis for righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ. It says nothing about ourselves, nothing about our morality, nothing about our works, nothing about our experiences, nothing about what we have accomplished or what we intend to accomplish. The Christian has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through His person, but through the work that He has accomplished uh, in His person as the mediator. And when we speak about Jesus Christ as mediator, we're referring especially to His two natures, divine and human, each retaining, of course, their distinct properties, but being united together in one person. And he then set forth, you might say, to accomplish the eternal counsel of peace by fulfilling all of the requirements. And so we speak of covenant theology, and we speak about a covenant of works that God, with His rectoral righteousness, established with Adam and with Adam as the representative of all of the human race. And in that covenantal arrangement that God had with Adam as the first human being. Uh, there was a condition and there was a threat. And then there was also a promise. The condition was perfect obedience. So God said to Adam, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a probationary command. It was a testing command to test whether or not Adam would perfectly fulfill all the requirements to retain this relationship with his Creator. And the threat was, the day you eat of it, the day you violate my commandments, the day you sin, you shall surely die. So implied is the promise of life. Now we all know having understood these things from our earliest days as Scripture was taught plainly in its revelation in the opening chapters of Genesis, the historical reality that Adam violated that covenant of works and plunged not only himself but the entire human race underneath the sentence of condemnation, having forfeited the promise of eternal life because he violated the condition of perfect obedience, Adam earned, you might say, for him and for all of his posterity, eternal death. But God appointed the greater Adam, the second Adam, the surety as Hebrews calls it, the mediator. And Jesus Christ then, you might say, assumed all of that responsibility upon himself. He took that condition upon himself of perfect obedience. And so he comes 
And throughout the entirety of his life, he perfectly obeys every single one of the commandments of God. Not so that he can earn some type of status with the Father and with the Spirit. He's eternal God, co-equal, co-essential, of equal dignity, of equal honor, of equal glory. So Christ doesn't have to earn anything for himself, but he earns for those whom he comes to represent. So he perfectly keeps the entirety of the law during his whole earthly life. And not only that, he suffers the consequences of the sins of his people. That threat of eternal death is laid upon his mediatorial shoulders with what we call the substitutionary atonement. Substitute being in the place of. And this is nothing more than what we would call the accomplishment, the accomplishment of redemption. So he obtains this perfect righteousness. And then there is the remarkable gift of God that brings about a gracious imputation. God grants and credits to me the righteousness of Christ. Now I think one of the most helpful analogies, if we can use this analogy. Maybe this is helpful for the boys and the girls, the young adults. Imagine for a moment that you owed somebody, let's say, $10,000. Now, the analogy breaks down because we owed God an infinite amount, but let's just use $10,000. For, you know, for a 10-year-old boy, that's quite a, quite a large amount of money. You owe someone $10,000, and you don't have a single penny. But let's say somebody comes along and says, I'll pay that $10,000 off. And I'm also going to transfer into your bank account a million dollars. And you don't have to do a thing. And so this very wealthy man goes to Lighton State Bank or Marion County Bank, whichever is your preference, wherever you bank, and he goes to the banker, and he says, that debt that that person owes... Here's the money. He takes the money out of his own account. And he pays the debt you owe. So now your balance is zero. But the wealthy man says, I'm not done yet. Here's a million dollars. I want it directly deposited into this person's banking account. You just went from owing quite a sizable amount of money to now having quite a sizable amount of money. And you didn't do a thing. That's imputation. Motivated merely by God's good pleasure. Christ says, place all of their debts upon my mediatorial shoulders and I will take it to the cross and I will nail it there definitively and I will say it is done. Payment made in full. And he goes on and he says, I will keep the law perfectly, satisfying every single requirement 
And I gift that entirely to my people. So that God in his position as rectoral judge now looks upon the Christian through Christ. And if we can grasp this, it will really, really, really bring substantial amounts of comfort and peace. God looks at me presently if I am in Christ and sees no sin. None. And not only that, He sees perfect righteousness. And on the basis of that, as a just judge, God says concerning the Christian, he, she is right with me. In a position of holiness, and a full conformity to all of my commands, so they have life. They have life in eternal life. They have fellowship with me. And this is the solid judicial ground of a legal declaration. You can think of another scripture passage that is so beneficial to memorize, Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now maybe some of you uh, English students in middle school, grade school, high school, you learn about the improperness of double negatives. But the Apostle Paul by inspiration throws out that, and he uses the double negative. There is now, therefore, absolutely no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not because of their works, not because of their experiences, not because of their traditionalism, not because of their conservatism, but because of Christ. Because he kept the law perfectly. And he has fully satisfied for all of the sins of his people. And this is the equation of saving grace. Christ equals everything. But don't try to add something to that. If you try to say Christ plus a little bit of me, then the equation equals nothing. Trying to add a little bit more devalues the work of Christ. You say, well, what about faith? Isn't that a work? Isn't that something I do? Isn't it Christ's work? plus my faith equals right with God? Well, that brings us into our third point, the reception of righteousness and the manner, rightly we say, justified by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But, but here's the manner by which we receive the righteousness of Christ. And, and faith in and of itself, you will remember, of course, Ephesians says faith in and of itself is a gift of God. So bound up in this accomplishment of salvation is also in the gift of the means by which we receive the righteousness of Christ, that of faith. So it's not like Christ does all this work and he has it you know, set there on, on the divine table of justice and then if we can just kind of muster enough spiritual energy to extend our hand of faith and, and, and take it, then it's ours. Oh, God gives the gift of faith as well. 
That's also sovereignly produced within our hearts underneath the means of grace by the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And all faith does, if we can say it that way, all faith does is receives Christ. Faith in and of itself doesn't bring about our justification. It brings about our justification as it embraces the fullness of the work of Christ Jesus. And that's why you can be fully justified even with the weakest of true faith. Because God doesn't look at how strong your faith is and say, ah, you know, you've scored a 90 out of the 100 on the faithometer. I thought you're justified today, but tomorrow if it dips below 60, you know, then oh, you lose your justification. No, even the weakest of true saving faith receives the fullness of Christ, and therefore God says on the basis of Christ you are justified. As you receive that, through the exercise of faith. Now, that's not to compliment weak faith. But it is pastorally to encourage those who struggle with a weakness of faith. And there you can think of the woman who had the perpetual issue of blood. She said to herself, and in the text, it is a word which means she kept saying to herself over and over and over as she came to Christ, if I may only touch the hem of his garment. I shall be made whole. She was made whole on the value of the person that she laid hold of, not the strength of her faith. So faith is this instrument, but it is an instrument that simply receives uh, the benefit of the person of Jesus Christ. Another analogy that I like to use and maybe boys and girls, you can ask your mom or your, your grandmother or an aunt uh, who's married or recently engaged. I know we have uh, at least two young women in the congregation recently engaged, and they have their engage, engagement rings. Uh, and, and there are the diamonds of the engagement ring. But then there's also the prongs that hold on to the diamond. And I don't know when the last time my wife did this, but she'll go into a jeweler uh, to get the, the ring cleaned, and the jeweler uh, want to look very closely at those prongs. You might say, those prongs are tiny. They're not the diamond. And you're right, they're not the diamond. So why does the jeweler look at the prongs? Because the prongs lay hold of the diamond. The value is in Christ. Faith just simply lays hold of Christ. And in conclusion, two matters. First of all, to anyone who hears these words, whether it be here in this auditorium, whether it be through the radio ministry, whether it be through the internet today or days down the road. Are you right with God? If you begin to answer that, well, I, I would lovingly stop you and say it's not, well, I. The answer is Christ. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But also I want to try to pastorally speak to those who perhaps still struggle with some form of I need to contribute something. You don't have to, and you can't. Either Christ is a complete Savior, or He's not a Savior. Don't think that you can help Christ in your justification. And don't think that you need to. If only I receive Christ and all of His benefits with the simple exercise of childlike faith, I shall be saved. This is the glorious beauty of the gospel, the good news. The good news is not, well, Christ has done this, so you go out and you see what you can do, and maybe in eternity the equation will hopefully work out to eternal life. The good news is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we stand amazed again by way of reminder of the simplicity of the gospel uh, and of the glorious truth of justification by faith alone based upon the work of our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ alone. Uh, we do confess that there are many times that this glorious truth of the gospel uh, gets confused within our minds and within our hearts. Uh, times that we are tempted to think that we have to add something, that we have to contribute something uh, to obtain or to maintain our right standing with you. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would clarify these truths within our minds and within our hearts, that we might have peace, and that you might receive all of the praise, honor, and glory, both now and forevermore. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.